Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, I'm Paul Roy. Just a word of warning. This series contains strong language, descriptions of hunting and fatal accidents, but they are the unvarnished reality of a different and a tougher time in New Zealand's history. So if you're squeamish or distressing personal stories affect you, a strong cup of tea might be in order. We must be getting pretty close to that bluff over there. And next one it goes, says, put your light on. Nothing. Put your light on, he said. Three times he yelled at her. Well, I think you were just that pleased to see that he was alive. He'd got out of it. The bloody bluff was right there. There was about four foot away from the bloody blades. That was my seventh time I should have been dead. You know how people say that they have a feeling that something's going to happen? I've never had those. Never. I'm going to tell you a tale about a wild time in New Zealand's history. You never knew what was going to happen in the next bloody ten seconds, let alone the next day. Tough men and women taking big risks. I didn't like the fact that I was getting very animal-like, saving bullets and cutting throats. I was always trying to tell him that he wasn't ten feet and bulletproof. He was lucky this time. Tales of loneliness, hardship and deprivation. You knew that you were going a bit troppo, you can feel it. The biggest problem I had would be sitting in one of those damn machines ferrying from Wanaka to over the coast. And I'd probably go through about two packets of cigarettes. And this was the safest time in the whole lot. I think they drank to relieve their tension, but then they forgot to stop. If you're weak, the strange things you will do. On foot in the high mountains. In those days, it was hard, hard yakko, I can tell you. You knew you had to look after yourself. Broke your leg, you had to buddy, get home and wait for someone coming to get the message out that you needed help. And in the air above them. And all of a sudden, shit, we just fell out of the sky, and I mean, we fell. And not everyone got away with it. I honestly thought my number's up. That was just part of the job, you know. If you got killed, it was hard luck, mate. Your turn's come. And the policeman come in. He said there's been a terrible accident in the Matuki. And I said, what's the terrible accident? He said, well, there's been two shooters killed. People used to say, oh, it must have been really glamorous. And I said, no, it was bloody hard work. And you've got to go to a funeral every three weeks. And all in the pursuit of big bucks. It was good money. You can make 10000 a week in those days. Yeah, money was good. But it just slipped through our fingers. Couldn't handle it. Prices went up and up and up. Well, we're at two Bob millionaires. And, you know, we thought this is going to last forever. But nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing. I'm Paul Roy, and this is Dear Wars, Episode 1, 
The Last Great Adventure. Those were some voices from the past, some living, some dead, but all people I've talked to over the last 15 years. A lot of them, I'm happy to say, have become my friends. Their early lives were shaped by the pursuit and destruction of red deer in New Zealand's bush and high country. In later years, the scramble for venison for profit has been likened, quite rightly I think, to a modern-day gold rush. Maybe even New Zealand's own Wild West. Often booze-fuelled, at a time when fortunes were made and lost. Lives richly lived, and lives lost too soon. And it was all pretty much happening away from public view, in the mountains and back country, which is where I am now, on the edge of Mount Aspiring National Park, all three and a half thousand square kilometres of alpine peaks, glaciers, river valleys and lakes. We just turned off the main Makawara Valley and we're heading up the, um, up the Cameron Creek to flow over a gorge. I flew in here with my old mate, Harvey Hutton. He's been around the traps and has a few stories to tell about this whole deer business. But more of that later. This belt's got tighter over the years, Harvey. How's that? This this belt's got tighter over the years. (laughs) Harvey was part of a unique group of Kiwis, working out of Opotiki and Te Anau, and just about everywhere in between. They lived extraordinary lives at a unique time in New Zealand's history. It all began back in 1861, when red deer, imported from Scotland as sports animals, were released into central Otago. Back then, no one thought of the environment, especially here in this colonial outpost, which was relatively pristine at the time. But for deer, this must have been paradise found. It's not surprising that in an ideal habitat, lots of food and no natural predators, within 30 years, huge herds in their thousands were taking over the place. And you could see the impact on our native trees and the land, as the aptly named Hunter Shaw recalled. Basically as high as a deer could reach, standing on its hind legs, was gone if it was palatable. So, I mean, they were having a huge impact on vegetation recovery just simply because there were so many animals that as soon as a a seedling had the audacity to poke its head above ground level, there was a mouth ready to munch it off. I think the seeds of this story were sown for me many years ago when I was a young man in the early 70s. I was a keen tramper. I was in the Tararua Ranges once when the hut door opened and a small, wiry man, carrying only a rifle and a sugar bag for a backpack, came in. He sat down by the fire, made a cup of tea in a jam tin, had something to eat, and went to bed. Before dawn, he had gone. He came back two hours later to drop off a piece of venison and left again. Never a word said. I remember being impressed at the time by how little gear he had, his economy of movement, and how at home he seemed in the hills. He was almost certainly a government deer cutter. 
And now, as a documentary maker of 40 years' experience, I look back and wish I'd had the wit to have a chat with them. If I had, it may have led me to talk to some of the very early colours, who are now long gone. My name is John von Tuzzleman, and I was born in Otaria down in Southland in uh, 1936, so that makes me 83 years old. Te Anau resident John von Tunzelman had a long career as a colour, a field officer, dock ranger, and worked on search and rescue in the dangerous helicopter era, and knows the bush as well as anyone and better than most. I interviewed him in 2018. No doubt about it in my mind, and it's been proven time and time again by surveys and that, that the deer are having a drastic effect on the vegetation in the forests and up in the upper mountain lands. Without any introduced predators, the, the future of a lot of forests with the overpopulation of deer was pretty drastic. Something needed to be done. Something was eventually done but it took until the 1930s and the start of the Great Depression to get going. The government declared red deer a noxious animal and decided to do something about it, and not before time, as herd numbers were in their millions. This is a very dramatic place where we are now. The helicopter's just shutting down and Harvey's just dropped us at the top of the Cameron Valley and we're surrounded by a sort of... a slabs and almost a cirque and it's got new new snow dusting on it from from yesterday from quite sharp and jagged peaks and then we've got a wee saddle here that's dropping down into the hunter valley system and there's another range of quite jagged peaks around there it's a very dramatic sort of place it's very beautiful in sound but there's no deer to be seen but years ago this place would have been actually hopping with the deer there'd be probably hundreds up here in the old days we flew here from Makarora in 13 minutes. Back then, it was a three-day slog for the shooters. They were hired by the Department of Internal Affairs, overseen by Captain George Yerricks, who'd served in the First World War. He was affectionately known as the skipper. And the men he took on were mostly experienced shooters. Their job was simple, to kill as many deer as possible, leaving the bodies where they fell, and cutting off the tails as proof of kill. It was highly wasteful, of course, but in those early years in remote valleys like this, there was no option or time to retrieve the venison. The original colours who served under the skipper in the 1930s are no longer with us, but others followed in their wake in this valley and others like it right across the country. One of the earliest ground shooters I found was Fred Dixon, then 91 and living in Thames. Being a returned soldier's son who was killed in World War I, I was taken over by the RSA as a child and I was sent to Flockhouse, which was a farm of instruction for um, returned soldiers and I spent a year there. With nowhere to call home and a rural background, Fred was in theory ideal just the sort of person to make a government shooter. In the paper, it advertised for government shooters, so I thought, well, here I go to the head office, which was now the Beehive. It was just a, like a big old house building. I registered there. 
I've got, I got a ticket to, to get the Limited Express and I had to go to uh, Fielding where I was to meet a field officer. I slept on the side of the road waiting for this guy to come. I didn't know who he was but I couldn't leave that area. This guy that the department had sent picked me up and take me into the hills didn't come for four weeks so uh, that was a bit of a prick. I know times are more casual, but this seems like taking things too far. He took me in the hills, and God, I'll never forget it, and he, he showed me where my boundary was, and then bugger me days, he doesn't take off. Now, I looked around me and thought, well, what, what goes on now? What do I do? And in I go, first-year shooter. Fred was homegrown, but other shooters were enticed to New Zealand with promises of greener pastures. And... A freer life. You're very punctual. <laughs> I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just turn the volume up and pass it over. Oh, good one. Right. Thank you. Hello? Oh, hi, Jock. How are you? Good, thanks. Oh, good. Uh, just give me a couple of seconds. I've got to fiddle around with the microphone levels here. Oh, yeah. Um, great. All right. So, um, Jock, can you first just, can I get your... Full name, your date of birth. Oh, yeah, well, my name is born? Pearson Ronald Fisher. Uh, born 1926, 21st of May 1926. Same year as the Queen and David Attenborough. Many of the older colours had said to me, you must talk to Jock Fisher. He's been through it all. So it was with great pleasure I eventually tracked him down to Toowoomba outside Brisbane. At 97, his memory for detail is impressive, in fact, rather sharper than mine, and his experiences during key moments of deer control filled in a lot of gaps. And I was born in a little place called Colin, C-O-L-L-I-N, just outside Dumfries, Scotland. My father was at Gallipoli and he lost his leg there. I had a very good childhood. I enjoyed it. The only thing I didn't enjoy was I went to school. <laughs> and, Jock, what made you want to come out to New Zealand? Well, when I was working as a wireless operator in the Army, I had an officer called Major Shirley. He was always telling me about New Zealand and what a great place it was, how it would be good for a young man. So at that time, the uh, New Zealand government put a message out, if you like to come to and work in New Zealand... We'll give you a free passage. So Jock migrates to New Zealand without having to pay a bean. And after a handful of random jobs, he finds himself sent to the West Coast and ends up a deer colour. There was no training or anything. You just pick things up on the way through. How did you go about making the transition to the bush? Because you came straight from the UK and you wouldn't have known anything about it. No, I didn't know anything about it, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it. You were left on your own to do your own thing as long as you got the job done. When Fred was a colour in the 1940s, only 10 years after the Great Depression and just prior to the outbreak of World War II, it was a time of austerity and their conditions reflected that. There were no huts, no communications, inadequate food and basically no contact with the outside world. In almost every respect, Fred, who had to wait four weeks for his field officer to bother turning up, did it tough. 
and had a very different experience from those of later generations, who had a network of huts, food and ammunition airdropped, and communications. I think Fred's trials were abnormal, even for those tough living guys, and would never have been tolerated by later shooters. There was no camps where I was at all, and I was just sleeping under logs and in caves. A cave in the camp were full of wetters, and they would get in your sleeping bag, and oh, they climb in anywhere, the pricks of things made it very hard for you to get sleep. And unfortunately, when you're eating, stuff gets stuck in your beard. You'd go to at night, be asleep, and, and it'd be a rat chewing your buddy beard. Fred may have been sleeping with wetters and fending off rats, but there was worse to come. Fresh out of wartime UK, Jock was on a steep learning curve. When you first went in to be a colour, what equipment did you have of your own and what did they supply? Well, you bought a rifle from them and all the army, three, three, not three, five pounds. You had your own boots, gear and whatever clothes you had. Uh, you could buy a, a sleeping bag from them, uh, which was made of K-Pok, and it, we used to call it a butter cooler. And you went to bed with all your clothes on and whatever else you could put over the top of you. Now remember, post-war New Zealand was a time of austerity, and that extended to the colours. When I first started shooting, you started at five shillings a tail. The ammunition came from, from different areas. Some of it must have been First World War stuff. You were supplied three rounds per animal. Anything over three rounds you were charged for. Three rounds per animal? And, of course, that's without telescopic sights, with old weapons and unreliable ammunition. Meanwhile, Fred Dixon is finding life as a colour just a bit tough. I would go away on these trips. Whatever I could scrounge, it was usually sweet nothing. Maybe a tin of peas. And I'd drink the water from them for the first day. I could, you know, bang a hole in the top and the bottom with my hunting knife and drink the water for one day. And that was the substance that kept me going. With nothing to eat but what you shot and a bit of fern and chew a bit of moss, even all covered in sand, tastes terrible. It, it is at least giving you nourishment and you can carry on. And this we had to do heaps of times. There was more survival for us, and later we found out that the field officer, for his own financial gain, was giving all our supplies to his girlfriend and parents. It's unbelievable when I think of it now. But uh, no, we were starved, unfortunately. And that went on for about five years till this guy was replaced by someone else and then the food started to tumble in. I've done a few hard trips myself. I've walked around these valleys, but hearing this story rather puts them in perspective. We were as fit as buck rats in those days. You, <laughs> you'd look at us and think, these jokers need a bloody good feed. They're nothing but skin and bone. But we were fit. Very fit. You get up in the morning at 4am, have a cup of tea, and you'd be up in the tops at daylight. Only going to be up there for the day. You might just grab whatever you had there and say, well, that'll do me for the day. If you'd made a loaf of bread, you might have a couple of slices of bread and a lump of cheese if you were lucky. But uh, and, and you'd have a drink of water. I, I can never remember anybody that I know who ever had a brew up on the top. 
Meanwhile, another UK migrant to try his hand at culling was Bernie Coggins. I chatted to him in his lovely cottage near idyllic Lake Rotuiti in Nelson Lakes National Park. I started work when I was 14, the city of London, at a place called Chancery Lane, and I was a reader's boy or reader for legal documents, eight hours a day. The most boring job in the whole wide world. I guarantee it. No wonder Bernie's looking for adventure. He gives the army a try, but New Zealand's where he ends up, knowing nothing about his new home. I didn't realise how New Zealand worked, but I didn't realise at Christmas it closed down completely. Absolutely. So what are we going to do? You know, that, oh, we go hitchhiking. And, of course, we had tents and we had packs uh, and we had little stoves. We had all, everything just disappear. And that was marvellous, you know. That was, I couldn't believe how free it was. Anyway, we ended up in uh, the Rua, and Roy came out waving these things. He said, hey, he said, they want deer colours, they want deer colours. Well, I said, what the hell's that? And he said, oh, yeah, and these blokes go and shoot deer. He said, do you go? I said, oh, why not? Perhaps Bernie might have given it a miss if someone like Fred Dixon had given him the lowdown on a colour's life. I, and probably you, have spent time alone. But in those early days, working as a government colour, it was taken to new levels. The longest I can remember going without seeing anyone, about eight months, what I was going to make up my life, it was what I liked doing, I liked shooting. But unfortunately, I think the isolation mostly is what made me retire. Solitude is the thing that can get you. No one to talk to. If there's just someone to talk to when you came back at night, it would be OK, but... That was uh, a hard part, and you knew that you were going a bit troppo. You can feel it. You know you're troppo. But it was sort of it was part of the job, and you just carried on and did it. And thought, well, okay, I've only got another two or three months, and I'll be out of here. Bernie Coggins, fresh off the boat in New Zealand, had all this in front of him. Roy came up one day, and he said, "He said, remember that form you filled in, wrote a word to go deer culling?" I said, "Yeah." What about it? He said, well, there's a telegram for you at the office. I said, oh, I couldn't back down there. I said, oh. They said, where are you going? Where are you going? We said, McElroy. They said, where's that? We said, we don't know. <laughs> we worked it out in the end, got to Wanaka, and we got the clouds transport up to McElroy, and there was four of us. We got off the mail truck and just stood there. And Jim Kennedy, the field officer, we got off, you know, and just, he said, oh, oh, you bloke, so, uh, so he said, now, uh, what sort of experience you had? Because we had our packs and rifles, you know. Arthur said, shooting pigs and deer up one of the stations in the North Island. And then Smith, he said, uh, oh, I've been gold panning on the coast, he said, and I, I did a bit of possum work. He came up to me and he looked straight at me. He said, and what experience have you had with red deer? I said, I saw Walt Disney's Bambi. <laughs> I've been tramping around the hills for years, building up experience and fitness. 
so I can only imagine what a shock burn he was in for. In his day, there were crude maps, no bridges, limited tracks and few huts. Bernie had no idea what he'd signed on for. It was green as grass. You didn't know how, really uh, how to boil a billy on open fire or how to make tea, let alone make bread and stuff like that. You know, it was absolutely, absolutely hopeless, really. I didn't have any winter-type gear. All I, all I had was my shirts, old army shirts that I'd kept. Not very good in the snowstorm in the Hunter Valley, I can tell you that. We had no training, no nothing, no, not an inkling of anything whatsoever. You might as well have sent a 12-year-old girl in, due respect to 12-year-old girls. Tough conditions affected each colour differently, and Fred Dixon was no exception. I didn't like the fact that I was getting very animal-like and uh, doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have done, such as saving bullets and cutting throats and you know, chasing wounded deer and knocking them down. And I'll cut the throat of a bloody wounded animal and put some on my mug and drunk it. And I've done it on more than one occasion. I got very callous with it and I was always aware of that. And I did try to stop it a bit and I did cut it down, but when I look back on it, I think they were great old days, but I, at the time, they were just so hard. I'd come out and I'd tell people different things and they'd look at me, you're a bloody liar. I'm sure they didn't believe just exactly what it was like. I mean, there's no job I know of that you walk until you're buggered and then you climb into your bag and you stay there till you get your energy back again and then you're off again and wherever you stop, you stop. Bernie Coggins, of Bambi fame, is one of those who struggles. But he perseveres, does the hard yards, and becomes a good colour. It was hard, hard yakko, I can tell you. In those days, you, would, you couldn't do it now. But we went over the Cascade Saddle, dropped straight down and went straight onto the dark glacier. And we went down the dark glacier jumping over these crevasses. We had these enormous packs. Sean's pack went 70, mine went 60. And I'll tell you what, they're big packs. Heavy. Because we was out for two weeks, you know, with a lot of ammunition, and we got to the hut and we was absolutely exhausted. We could not summon up the strength to go down to the creek to get the billy full of water. And then we did get it and we looked out the window and there's a couple of deer. They can stay there. I've been over Cascade Saddle. It's a bloody steep and hard climb on which several people have slipped and died. In Bernie's day, there was no track, no polled route, no GPS. And there weren't even really any maps or weather forecasts. And I'm amazed that so few young colours were killed. But for every newbie like Jock, there were also local hunters who knew the mountains like the back of their hand. John Singer grew up on the Arahura River on the west coast of the South Island, where his father was a master of a gold dredge. 
and they lived a very active outdoor life. I talked to John several times in the same Greymouth house he built in 1964 with the money he earned from hunting. He's what you'd call a straight shooter. And John, how old were you when you were shooting these deer? Well, when I first started shooting deer, I'd have been about 16 probably. And did you have a licence? No. He didn't have licences in those days. <laughs> he just went shooting in those days. <laughs> and whose rifle were you using? I had my own. We used to be able to buy an old 303s from the army. We used to cut them down ourselves and make them like a bit of a sporting rifle. Had one of them for a starter. Used to tell the old lady at lunchtime I was going for a shot, but it was fine. And she'd have me tea ready when I got home at up past four and I'd be gone at five o'clock. Used to bike out to Arahura, ten mile out and, and up the river for a shot and home again whenever I got home in the middle of the night. Quite often every night of the week. Yeah, there were different times then, weren't they, John? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 20 mile a night I used to bike. The hills are where John wants to work and play, but his father's got other ideas. Well, the old man, they'd been through the Depression, right? And uh, he said, get, get a government job, you're paid for the rest of your life. That's why I got jumped into the office. But I wasn't interested in office work. Started off in timber sales for the first 12 months, that was the most boring job he could ever have, sitting there all day, adding up figures. But I also used to do the pays for the deer colours. I used to say to the old man, I've got to go deer colour. Some of them were making big money. They were on contract. Some of them should never have been in there. They were useless. So I was shooting more deer on a push bike after work than they were getting full time. And I said to the old man, if I get in there, I can make a heap of money. But he wouldn't believe me. No, you got to have your job. And when I turned 21, I rebelled against the old man. At 21, John Singer gets the key to the door. And he's off to become a colour. His dad's not happy. But don't forget, John's been shooting deer by himself since he was 15. I got posted down to Canterbury. The day we were going in, the boss of Canterbury that took us in there, he used to shoot over here when he was a young fella and used to live with my auntie out the road here. And I knew him. And I was fishing to find out how many we had to get to know whether you were doing any good. And he had three guys in there and he said, well, one guy's doing okay he's getting five a week. And I thought, oh, God, that's going to be so boring, five a week. Some nights I was shooting five on a push bike and the other two were not doing too good. They were getting two a week. Well, he dropped me off at two o'clock in the afternoon. I had two before dark and the next morning I got up at daylight and I went up the river flats to see what it was like and there was flats for miles up the head of the St. James Station, up the head of the wire. I seen over 30 the next morning for a morning shot and shot 15. Shot, shot 17 and I hadn't even been there 24 hours. For years, John's been telling his father there's good money to be made in deer. Turns out John's right. We were on £10 a week 
and 10 bob a tail. So when you shot 20 tails for the week, you got 20 pound a week. And 20 pound a week in those days was a top salary. The old man was getting 20 pound a week and he was a dredge master. Well, 1,040 a year is getting just over 20 pound a week. My first full season here, in seven months season, I banked 1,100 pound and my old man was working for 12 months for 1,040. He couldn't believe it. But those just starting out in the same area are lucky to shoot as many deer in a month as John can do in a day. And in his no-nonsense way, John explains why. It was the most beautiful deer country he'd ever seen up there, and there was hundreds of deer there. What they were doing was getting up in the morning at 8 o'clock or something, lighting the fire, cooking the feed. The smoke chased all the deer away, and then they'd go out and they couldn't find any deer, and they were climbing to the tussock, and there was no deer on the tussock at that time of the year. It was just after the end of winter, and all the deer were living on, in the bush down on the flats. Well, when you walked across the flats, you didn't have to be very wide awake to, to see all the deer shit on the flats and clover this high. That's where the deer were there. But they were too silly. I shouldn't to even realise that that's where the deer were. Well, I shot 730 for the season. That's the numbers of deer all around. Bernie was turning out to be a competent colour, but others, not so much. The Hunter Valley was what they called a three-man block. And this bloke came in, he'd done a bit of shooting and that, you know, but he looked a bit soft to me. Fractionally overweight, you know, and a bit of a mother's boy sort of thing. Anyway, I'm with him in this little hut called Ferguson's and, uh, and, and I cooked up a feed, which was hopeless. Absolutely, I, I, I don't know how I hit myself. I sort of tried to fry some cheese I let fried cheese in a batter. Thought I'd try that. Didn't work. We sat there at this little table, and he looked at me and he said, "My mother said that I shouldn't go on this job." He said, "I think mother was right." Coming up next time, we'll pick up the stories of the colours as airdrops, new huts and radio communications all make their lives easier. But as so often here in the bush, things don't always go to plan. I had 11 weeks when all I had was venison and chamois. Drinking away and spitting it out, and it was mouse shit. No salt, sugar, tea, nothing. There was a 2,000 foot drop down there, and he was sitting on the edge of it. I pulled two teeth out with my pliers. It was bloody agony, but it had to be done. The chute opened before it had fallen very far, and the next thing, it's wrapped on the tail because the violet turned his head round quick and said, what's going on? That's next time on Deer Wars. Deer Wars is written and presented by me, Paul Roy. It's engineered by Alex Harmer. The executive producers are Katie Gossett, Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.